welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Text is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, you lay bare a treasure for us in displaying your word of truth. You have called us this morning to your presence. You have heard our confession, and we are reminded of the power of the blood of Christ in cleansing us from sin. We are in this very moment being renewed in consecration unto you. Let our hearts be open and receptive to your word today. Let it take the deepest of roots and bear the holiest of fruit in our lives and for your kingdom's sake. And the people belonging to God all say, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning out there to everyone. Uh, we have some people who aren't here today and we sure do miss you. When folks are absent from our service to worship with us, we do miss them, but we know that uh, they join us in spirit. And I've already and I've already warned Noah Murky that he's going to hear his name a little bit today, so if he's inclined to doze off. Uh, he probably won't, or maybe. But anyway, we're entering uh, now in Genesis. We're back to Genesis after, for me anyway, when I'm in the pulpit. Uh, we had a, a, a couple uh, Lord's Days hiatus from Genesis as we looked at the Holy Spirit of God, and now as we're back in Genesis, we're entering a stretch of Holy Scripture that deals with the judgment of God against mankind in the form of the great flood, and a flood that covered all the earth, and I found it, I continue to be amazed, I, I tell people all the time that God doesn't surprise me necessarily, but he never ceases to amaze me. And that amazement in, in the form of what we looked at early in the, in the liturgy this morning, uh, the texts that were selected by Brother Luke, and then his exhortation prior to our confession, and then even the, even the uh, content of the, the lyrical content of the hymns that we've already sung, there's a conflation here, there's this, this melding together of things that are going on, and as... As, as Luke begun uh, the, the revelation and the message this morning that God has for all of us, uh, it's going to be bookended because that's where, our, that's where we're at now. We're going to be taking a look at, at a righteous man in the midst of a very corrupt and violent culture. In, the, in, the, in fact, in the entire earth uh, being violently corrupted. So as I start today, I want to kind of start with, uh, let's say, a 30,000-foot flyover, if you will. And it begins by contrasting, this portion of Scripture begins by contrasting Noah with, his, with the generation that he's in. Now, we already know that these generations are massively long, right? Uh, these 
guys that live until five, six, seven hundred years old. So there is there is a lot of people on this earth at the time. This was not just a, a small group of people who succumbed to the judgment of God in the midst of the flood. We're talking about millions of people. And the way of a righteous man against that of a corrupt and violent world in open rebellion to God. Now, we, there should be some identification from us as believers, as Christians, as Luke alluded to. Uh, there should be, we should be able to identify with Noah when we look around and just, just glance at the landscape of this world that is around us. And we can, we can identify with that ourselves, can't we? And in the upcoming portions of our Genesis series, we're going to make a few observations, particularly concerning Noah, because that just, that's the portion of Scripture we're in, that his righteousness in a thoroughly corrupt world. Now, we know we can, we can, we can identify with that, and we can understand the challenges that will be presented to us as righteous people of God in a, in a corrupt world. That shouldn't be a stretch for us. So we, we be prepared for that. We understand it. His obedience of the Lord's command in preparing the ark. We will see that. His deliverance from the flood. His worship after the flood. His reception of the covenant promises, blessings and commands. And his drunkenness and nakedness in the tent, certainly his story ends uh, in chapter 6, ends on a lower note from which the narrative began. But that's part of the story as well. And as we come upon these units of the story contained in chapter 6 through 10, which obviously I'm not going to get to today, but we we are going to be going through as we continue marching through Genesis Um, The parallels to the beginning of Genesis, to the beginning, to the creation of the universe by God speaking things into creation, the parallels, I think, are rather obvious. That the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven brought a flood over the whole earth. So we see this this chaos ensue out of the judgment of God. That it started with this chaotic water covering the earth and we see God... God doing what he does in creation. But then the water abated and dry land appeared as the seas are once again gathered into their proper places. That was in Genesis 1 verse 9. And in the next unit we see Noah is commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. For he is now what? He is the new man on earth. He is the new, he is the patriarch remaining on earth. And in the following unit, Noah's failure was displayed in his line naked, just as the knowledge of nakedness was evidence of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. In both cases, curses resulted from the failures. So, as Moses pens Genesis, there is a deliberate parallel between Adam and Noah, and between Adam's world and Noah's world. With Noah, there is a new beginning of God's creation, but there's also... What? There's also a new beginning of evil. When we think about this narrative, this passage of scripture, just a hand, just a short, hand, a small handful of verses that I shared with you guys this morning, there are some theological ideas that we want to look at and consider. God is the judge over the whole earth, judging both the wicked and the world upon which the wickedness was perpetrated. We understand that. I'm not giving you any kind of new or fresh revelation in that. And I don't even know whether or not I need to really expand a whole lot on it. But God is the judge. And he is the righteous judge. And he is the only judge. And why would God use a flood to to bring judgment? Well, God is sovereign over all creation. And he frequently does use nature to judge humankind or to exact or execute that judgment against humans. The sea has always been a symbol of chaos. I've already mentioned that and something that human beings cannot control. I always uh, I always chuckle when I hear about climate change and people that are all about climate change. And I'm thinking, my goodness, you shake your puny little godless fist against the sovereign creator of the world, you're going to change the climate? You need to get a grip and you need to get a clue. In Job 38, 8 through 11, just 
just a few short verses here. I love that portion when God is God answers Job by asking him these rhetorical questions. When God is established, when God makes it very clear who He is, and He asks, He says, "Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it." And set bars and doors and said, thus, for shall, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. That's the God of the universe. But God has power over it in all of nature. Psalm 29, I was going to read it in its entirety. It's not a very long psalm, but let me just share just a couple verses out of it. It says that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The great flood would be certainly a most effective way of purging the world. And if nothing else, it's certainly very graphic. God thus purifies the earth of all but what? Of all but a remnant. And we are... We as Bible-believing, Bible-reading, Scripture-embracing Christians, we're used to understanding and, and understanding God and his, and his covenant relationship with us that He always has a remnant. Because as we read through the prophets, as we read through the, uh, as we read particularly through the Old Testament, we're just getting, we get hammered and hammered and hammered by how unfaithful and how ridiculously sinful Israel is. Despite having this, these grand revelations of God, but God always maintains a remnant. Not everybody, not everyone is going to bend the knee to Baal. Okay, so there's a remnant here to, in, to boot, and we've already talked about it. If you can remember as far remember back, hopefully I know your memories better than mine is back to talking about Noah is set up to be who he is by and only by the grace of God. So God thus purifies the earth of all but the remnant, but later we see that the law will be used, uh, we'll use terminology of washing with water as a symbol for purging before worship. We see that in Leviticus chapter 8 and beyond uh, throughout, particularly the Old Testament, but also as well in the New Testament. The New Testament also draws on these motifs of being washed, this flood, this purging. In Titus 3.5, for instance, it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And this section provides the interpretive bridge, hence the title of my, my short message this morning, bridge between the shadowy past antediluvian or before the flood and the nearer more comprehensible period if you will uh, of Israel's fathers following the deluge so uh, we've already talked a little bit about anti and post diluvian uh, eras in in humankind and, and certainly uh, when we talk about post diluvian the post diluvian world being more comprehensible to us we kind of we kind of understand what we mean by that. Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, Seth, uh, Lamech, all these these guys seem so they're so far off. But when we start talking about Noah, but particularly when we start talking about Abraham, they are so they are so prominent in the Word of God. They're very familiar to us, and I'll, we can we can re, we seem to be able to relate to them even more so than perhaps Adam and Eve and uh, their and Cain and Abel and some of their immediate offspring. It continues the universal interest in man and the world, but at the same time it starts a narrowing process and arrives at the more focused history of Israel via Noah's son Shem. And the expansive ages between creation and the calling of Abraham are telescopes so that the blessing is passed down through three particular patriarchs. Those are Adam, and then Noah, and then Abraham. Noah is both thematically and genealogically the linchpin. He's the bridge in the presentation by Moses here in, in Genesis. Now, 
continuing to look at Moses in this portion of scripture is very important for us. I think it, there's, there's a lot to be drawn from looking at who Noah is, but even more importantly, how God sees Noah and how God has, has um, set Noah up to do what he does, to give, to give Noah the grace that he gives him. Because Noah's going Noah's gonna to do things that are absolutely, according to the world, absurd. They're ridiculous. He's going to do things that are so unfamiliar. And again, we, we don't eisegete this thing. We don't say, well, Noah, less is Noah, or anything like that. We don't do that. But we do draw parallels to our own, to our own lives and to the, to the landscape that, that God has put us in here in, in Lewis County let alone the other things that are going around nationally as well as globally in our world. In later times, Noah was noted for his piety and his righteous courage. In Ezekiel 14, there's two verses in there I'll share with you. In 19 and 20, it says, Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah... Daniel and Job were in it. As I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. And Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10 says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. My steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has, who has what? He has compassion. This is our God. He's the judge, but he's also the compassionate one. He's our redeemer, our savior as well. Noah was commonly associated with the virtue of godliness. In Hebrews, of course, chapter 11, the great chapter on faith and the identification of those who have a, who were cited as faithful. In verse 7 it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Of course in 2 Peter 2.5 Noah was even referred to and called a preacher of righteousness. So now as we read Genesis, there is no preceding act, there's no antecedent of uh, righteousness by Noah that would point to or explain his favorite place before the Lord. And what I mean by that is that there's no, there's no, Noah just kind of comes on the scene here for us. And he's deemed righteous. He's deemed righteous by God. God identifies him as righteous. There's not any kind of huge prelude to the story of Noah before before we see and encounter him in the context of this judgment that's fixing to come upon the earth. And this points theologically to one thing, and I'm not going to preach on it today, but at some point we want to, somebody will, specifically, it points theologically to the elective purposes of God for Noah in this case. It shows that the patriarch already enjoyed a relationship with the Lord before his recorded acts of obedience. Then Noah was chosen by God. Noah was chosen by God. Noah did not synthesize or fabricate some exceptional faith, but that that faith came from God and was instilled in Noah by the Holy Spirit. Noah's story serves as an exhortation to righteousness and enduring faith in the face of uh, degenerate times. We're going to draw from this. This should this should build us up. This should help clue us in. It should help us understand that when Roe v. Wade gets it's overturned, we don't we don't just go, oh boy, we're in trouble because there's going to be a whole, whole all all hell's going to break loose. No, we should we should rejoice in that. We don't go around beating our chest and put a cape on and drive around the back of our pickup trucks. But no, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in it. So as we look at these scriptures and we, we do this flyover and then kind of hunker down a little bit or, or zero in on our target, which is Noah today, and to draw some conclusions out of that, 
we see three particular phrases that are associated with Noah. One, that he's a righteous man. One, another, that he's blameless. And another, that he walks with God. So when we look at righteous, there's an interesting thing, and we've encountered this, we've been encountering this as we go through Genesis, and for me personally, it's been a real privilege to, to start in Genesis 1, verse 1, and encounter these first times. The word righteous occurs for the first time here in the Bible, in this, in this portion of Scripture. The word righteous. And then we will see in, in chapter 7, and, and early on in chapter 7, where Noah's conduct causes God to gracefully spare him and his family. We'll talk about that next time. Righteous can often have a forensic nuance, okay, and in which the righteous or the just one meets a standard of right conduct. We're talking about Noah possessing, uh, we need to understand this, we're talking about Noah possessing spiritual integrity, we're certainly not talking about Noah being sinless. That's very important. You know, we need, and I think um, for such a, a Bible literate group that is typically here with us, we understand that. That there was no sinless man but one, and we know who that is, but that Noah did have spiritual integrity. So that should, that should there's an exhortation there for us. That we we can we can possess that spiritual integrity, and in fact, it's not something that we stumble across. It's not something that happens by accident. But we should endeavor. We should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we should have that spiritual integrity. We should have it, and not only should we have it, God requires it, and not only does He require it, He demands it. Righteousness implies a correct relationship with God. Righteous action is hence action which flows out of God's gracious election. We already talked about that just, a, just briefly. In this case, it's Noah. And God himself is righteous and may be relied upon to act in accordance with the terms of his relationship with Israel. Okay, we're kind of we're positioning ourselves to begin to move into this, this realm, the, 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 the heavy patriarchal look at the, the, the this continuing narrative story history of redemption. And we're going to start running into these patriarchs and looking at them in detail. God is a righteous judge who, judge who acts for his people. In Psalm 9 verse 4 it says, For you have maintained my just cause, you have sat on the throne giving a righteous judgment. And so from this knowledge emerges this, again, I'll use the word conflation, but just this fusing together of the, of the notions of righteousness and salvation. Righteousness and salvation together. God is a righteous, is righteous God and therefore a Savior. And Isaiah 45, 21 says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none beside me. Our God is the creator, and therefore he is the ground, and he is the guarantor of the moral order of, this, of the universe. God is. It's not that, that nice guy or the, that, the neighbor that helps old ladies or anything like that. It's God. And there, therein lies the beauty and the answer for us. But it also, it also, it also causes a problem, right? It can cause a problem for us when the standard isn't just a. Let me go around and find the best person in this room right now, and I want to aspire to be like that person. That's okay, but we understand that God is the standard. And that, that frames everything for us, and it's so vital as we consider all these things. The Creator is also the Redeemer, and His righteousness is interpreted by His redemptive activity. So we see that Noah owes any claim and consideration of righteousness to God and God alone. We, are all, we who are called by His name are no different. And as we look at the term, the, the turn of phrase, if you will, walking with God, I want to spend just a, just a moment looking at that. In biblical times, we know that walking was the, 
was the mode of transportation. Not everybody had a colt or a donkey or, or a chariot or anything like that. Many people walked. And in fact, I, I thought about, and when we talk about walk, we can talk about the physical act of walking, but there's also this figurative and metaphorical understanding of walking walks walk, if you will, with God. So I, when there's, a, when there's a term like that, I always go to my handy dandy, my little trusty, it ain't little, but my trusty Strong's Concordance, and I looked up the term walks. Okay, and it is in the Bible 413 times. The reference to walk, walked, walking, 413 times. And if we survey these references, we would see we would see that Jesus is probably the most persistent pedestrian in the Bible. He, he, got, he walks. He walked everywhere. And I, you know, uh, I need to probably take a cue from that. And just, uh, I'm not asking the Lord to cause my car to break down, but at the same time, uh, be mindful of that. That there are things in our lives that are worth walking for, but also that Jesus walked. He walked amongst us and he walked with us. Of course, in the context of Noah, we're, we are refer, referring to a figurative or metaphorical sense that Noah walked with God. There are often a couple of motifs going on in here when we reference walking. Uh, one is that there's interaction with someone in a metaphorical walk. Do we walk with one another? Absolutely, right? We, we come alongside one another. Um, I think men, men are wired to want to fix things. So... I know when my wife would come home, when I was a young guy, I wasn't a Christian or anything, she would come home with this burden and uh, start ranting and raving about somebody at work. You know, I wanted to tell her, okay, woman, be still and let me tell you what you need to do. Well, that isn't what she needed. That isn't what, she, that isn't what I should have delivered to her. What I should have done is just walked with her through it. And, and so we can, we, can, we can understand what's going on in things. We can't fix things, but we do walk with people. And in fact, the, the paraclete, the, the, the Holy Spirit of God walks with us. He comes along, that's the whole, that's the definition of who the, who the Holy Spirit is. He's, he comes alongside of us. And we do that figurative or metaphorical walking. Or referencing a person's lifestyle or image suggesting, what, continuous progress in time and a chosen direction. Well, we just had a really long-winded sermon last week about sanctification. So that's what we're talking about here. Now when we talk, when we think about God walking, certainly we, we know that God walked with Adam in the garden. That was very clear. And you know, I think, uh, it's, it's, I think it's wonderful to sit and contemplate what that might have looked like. And what it might have been, this, this tangible... Walking, that God would come and join with Noah in the cool of the evening, in the cool of the day, and walk with him. I just think that's a beautiful thing to, to, to picture in our in our mind. None, none of the chaos, none of the noise, none of the, the things going on, but just being with God and walking with God. What a wonderful thing to consider. After the Exodus, God promises Israel, I will walk among you and be your God, in Leviticus 26. And God also visits and walks around the camp of the Israelites, in Deuteronomy 24. He says, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Boy, there's just a, just in that in that passage alone, Deuteronomy 23 verse 14. What a consistency there is! What a consistency there is, because we'll see we see even in the encounter Moses has with the, the the bush burning and not being consumed, where God says, "You take your sandals off, for you are on holy ground." The presence of the Lord is there. We see we saw early on in Genesis when Cain slew his brother Abel. How the blood of Abel from the ground cried out, cried out to God for for justice. That God takes takes the sin against 
the nation seriously. So figuratively, think about how much blood has stained this nation. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the war between the states necessarily. I'm talking about what Luke was talking about a little while ago in the exhortation. These examples of God's walking on the earth picture the active divine presence among the people of God that God has created and called. And the counterpart of God walking with his people is their walking with him or before him. Certainly Enoch and Noah. In Malachi 2 verse 6, God pictures the original priesthood as walking with him in peace and uprightness. And in Revelation 3 4, Christ promises that the remnant in Sardis who remains pure will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So as we look at, I want to look at verses 10 and 11 in particular just for a moment and then close the message here. So as, as walking is one of the Bible's vivid metaphors for how godly people should live both positively in terms of in terms of what to follow, but also negatively in what in 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 warning of what to avoid. We're told what to avoid. We're told what to shun. All these things. Some of them are very general. Some of some of the legislation in the Bible, if you will, is very specific. But you know, we have an umbrella that says shun the appearance of evil, for instance. So we understand what that means. That can, that can be a guide without citing a particular proof text. We go, you know what, I need, to, I need to be careful what I do. People are looking at, people look at us. I, I think one of, the most, one of the most challenging things we can experience as a Christian is to be doing something that we shouldn't be doing and somebody coming up and going, uh, excuse me, I thought you were a Christian. I mean, that will, that will pierce us to the quick. And it will cause us just to, it will crush us. That reality and that, that question, because we know the answer to it. And it should, obviously, lead us to repentance. In verse 10 it says, And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And since Noah is the apparent heir of God's promises, the, this post-Diluvian population should take heart that the Lord would perpetuate the promise through Noah's appointed offspring. And that's, gonna, that's a key thing for us, and it's been a key thing, and it's going to continue to be a key thing throughout the, the history and the narrative, narrative of redemption in the Bible. The, the greatest sin in the Old Testament is unbelief. But one of the greatest attributes and examples of God and His compassion and mercy is that He is faithful. He is faithful. And He's always faithful. There's no deviation there. So Genesis, and we'll look at this in the, in the near future, that Genesis looks to these three descendants as the fountainhead of all peoples. We're going to see how that plays out. And we'll see soon enough what the three will carry, which one of the three will carry the elect line of Noah. In verse 11 it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Okay? The repetition of corrupt, when we look at the portion of Scripture that I read at the beginning of the message this morning, we see the word corrupt three times. So it underscores, it underscores God's appraisal uh, of the human condition and proves legitimacy in the extreme nature of what his judgment is going to be. My goodness, he's, he's going to wipe out the entire earth except for the remnant he is, that he has chosen. That's what God's going to do. And as we go along in, in Genesis and, and in Exodus and, and throughout, throughout the Bible, in fact, we're going to see people do, do things that didn't seem quite so bad, but there's going to be quite a judgment executed. Steady in, a, steady in the, the cart that has the ark in it. Well, that's a whole sermon. We'll deal with that when we get to it. But we're going to see that it all, it all emanates and stems from the holiness of God. God's holiness, His purity, 
His he's undefiled. All of these things. The corruption is further de defined by the term violence, and we know violence talks about things that are uh, devote, denote severely rough and injurious physical force, but also power against another person. And whereas God has blessed the human family with the power of procreation to fill the earth, these culprits have filled the earth and procreated it with violence. So as we are made witness to Noah and his environment, what's the message to us? I want to deal with that just for a moment before we, we come to the Lord's table. What's the message to us? Where does this leave this generation of believers? These in front of us, these young folks that are with us this morning, those that are listening in. Well, the one thing we can count on, the one thing that is established, as Jesus said, that he is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. Today and tomorrow. That, that's a fact. So we camp on the truth of God's word. That's what we do. We count on it. Because it has never let us down. It hasn't. It may not have met some uh, expectation you might have had in, in the temporal sense. But we can count on the word of God. And we can count on God because he is faithful. Now, to, to close, I want to use a portion of Scripture that we're all pretty familiar with in Ephesians 6, verses 12-13. Paul said this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to what? To stand firm. So as we consider consider where we're at now, as we as we looked at Noah, we looked at this one righteous man in the midst of just this earth filled with corruption and violence and rebellion against God. We we can we can have that sense in ourselves. We can have that sensation in ourselves as we go about our day. And it can challenge us in a mighty way. So we're in a war, okay? This is when Paul says, take up the full armor of God, not our armor, not armor that we fabricate or anything. It's God's armor. He says, take it up. Put it on. Because we are at war. We are soldiers for the great king. We are soldiers for the Lord of hosts. The world is on the march, and where is the church of Jesus Christ in the midst of this war? It's a legitimate question. It's one I ask myself personally, but it's one I can ask of as we look at the church militant, as we can look at the visible church in the land and globally. Where are we in the midst of this war? The world now, at the same time, is on the march. Been on the march. And what? It takes no prisoners. Concerning we as Christians, the world will give no quarter and requires three things of us, at least. You can make a case for more. But requires three things from us. That we as believers, as Christians, must capitulate. That, we, that is, we must cease to resist, we must surrender to the little G God of this age. That's what the world requires of us. There's no, they will not compromise with us. If you think they will, if you want to appease them, you need to get a clue. Because it's not going to happen. That's their expectation, and they are in pursuit of it, and they are relentless for it. We must abrogate. That is, we must resist and evade our responsibility to God and abandon truth. We must, the world expects us to capitulate, it expects us to uh, abrogate, and expects us to repudiate. That is, we must renounce the Bible. We must renounce the Bible, its truth, its doctrines, and its God-breathed inerrancy. So therefore, Christianity and therefore Christians are under attack. We are. 
What does this war look like? Well, look around you. Tolerance towards Christianity has always, always been present and evident throughout history. But it's become notoriously blatant in this century. But you know, that could be a good thing. Think about it. I would much rather have somebody assault me, come at me and assault me, than sucker punch me. So these people who are at war with us and whom we are at war with in return, okay, they, they just come blatantly and, and, and they attack us. And we know it's there because they, they've just thrown, thrown down the gauntlet and they don't even care anymore. They're not even trying to be nuanced about it or subtle about it, right? They're not. And, and you know, I, in, in putting my notes together, I had least, at least a dozen examples of things where people were, were assaulted, and, and by assault, I don't necessarily mean grabbed or punched or, or kicked or dragged to jail or anything, but told to take down a scripture from your computer screen. This, is, this, this was in a, a military uh, base. Things like that. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm just not going to get into all that. But that's the war we're in. And we need to understand that. You know, uh, Kay and I went out, we squeezed in 18 rounds of golf yesterday, okay? Whew, it's tough. <laughs> Very hard. But anyway, we, we, had, we had kind of accomplished what we needed to. We needed to. The message was in the can. I just needed to do some things to it. But anyway, I'll try to make the story really short. We're in the 11th hole on the east course in the Wacom. Elevated tee, you hit off, there's fairways down there and a dog leg right, okay? Both of us, uh, you know, we were praying, we, we hit our, both our balls right in the center of the fairway and out there pretty good. So we're sitting there and we're looking and I got my little thing out, I'm gauging the distance of the hole and all of a sudden this ball comes just winging by from here to Luke from, from us and lands right there. And I look back up the hill and there's this guy standing there. I mean, we couldn't be more evident than him. And I looked at him and I went like this, and he looks at me and goes like that. At least that's what I, how I discern him. <laughs> so anyway, I, I don't want to belabor this story, but so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit torqued, because we've both been hit before on the course, and I'm going to tell you, golf balls are very dense, they're very hard, and you don't want it. There's not, it's not fun to get hit with one. And actually, it's very dangerous. So certainly the etiquette out there is you wait. You know, if your ball's going to land around these people, and we were not—we're not slow players. We, we play fast, but anyway. So the guy, you know, he gets into my head, and anyway, um, Kay and I go about. She, I go. We're, we're going to let him go through at the next hole. Part. Let him. We'll just let him go through. Well, the guy came down. He wasn't a young kid either. He's way younger than us, but he wasn't. He wasn't just some some kid. And he came down, and, he, and we were close to the next tee, and I said, play through. And he got up there, and he hit his ball, and he drove off. He never, he never acknowledged anything. He didn't offer any apology. He didn't say, man, I don't know what happened. I didn't see it, whatever. He just drove off. So, you know, I won't, I won't tell you what would have happened 20 years ago. <laughs> but at the same time, I just sat, Kay and I had a conversation, and you know what? What, what he meant for evil, okay, and I'm using that in, you know, apply the right context, okay, to it and the degree of things. Kay and I, it just spurred a conversation with us that should we be necessarily surprised? In this day and age, and this is sad, I lament over, we lament over this. Should we be surprised that this is what happened? This total disregard and, and just... This, this lack of civility and courtesy and things. Should we be surprised? And you know, that's kind of where we're in when we talk about being in a war. That's just one example. It's not just rolling our sleeves up and going in like this because we remember what Paul said. Our, our, our fight is not against him. Our fight wasn't against him. It's what's behind him. It's against the authorities and the cosmic powers and the present darkness. Okay, that's what our fight is against. And when we think about the three terms I used, getting off the, the story there, but it did it did prompt this thinking. And I, I guarantee you, folks, brothers and sisters, beloved, 
I guarantee it's gonna, it's gonna, it's, it's happened to you. It's gonna happen to you again. Somebody's not gonna use their blinker. Somebody's gonna catch you out in traffic. Somebody's gonna steal your prized parking spot or whatever. It's gonna happen, and they're gonna have absolute disregard for you. As and and they don't even know you're a Christian. It has nothing to do with you. But it's just more and more and more commentary about what the landscape looks like now. Okay. Think about the three terms I use, capitulate, abrogate, and repudiate. The pervasive move in the Christian sector to alter their to alter their views on the Bible in order to accommodate the culture, areas of homosexuality, gay marriage, transgender issues, etc. And no Christian is going to be exempt from this assault. The days, listen, the days of comfortable Christianity are long gone. They've been gone. I want to quote John Piper here. He said, once upon a time, there was a safe private place to take your controversial stand for Jesus. No more. If you are going to stand, you will be shot at either figuratively or literally. And I'm going to quote another theologian here, Klein Snodgrass. He's written some commentaries. He said, if you seek a religion to make you comfortable, despite all its focus on peace and benefit, Christianity is not it. This is no religion for the weak and lazy. Passive Christians cannot do the will of God. Passive Christians cannot do the will of God. The very label passive Christian is an oxymoron. A battle is going on. And, and contrary to our deception, we do not live on moral turf. We either live for God or against Him. The choices we make either reflect God's character or the character of sin. Even Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. One or the other. There's no Switzerland, there's no neutrality, and passivity is not going to cut it. You either serve God or the devil. One or the other. That's how it shakes out, breaks down. That's the reality of it. Leon Morris, another commentator and theologian, said, Listen, you can drift into sin, but you cannot drift into righteousness. We are not passive. We need to be active. And I want to talk a little bit about that to close up. The reality is if you stand strong and tall in your Christian faith, you will be called intolerant. You will be called a bigot or even a hater. Reality is, if you are anti-abortion, you will be seen as waging war on women and an enemy to freedom of choice. Maybe some of you have already encountered that post the Roe v. Wade decision to strike down Roe v. Wade. I've already had conversations within my own, not immediate household, but extended household. What do you think about that? Well, I love it when somebody asks me that. Because let me tell you, here's, here's the reality. Let me tell you when life does begin. And that, that's, the, that's the crux of everything, when life begins. Think of the hatred spewed and, and the, the people that do, do vile gestures to Maya and her, and her brothers and sisters who go out and the folks that stand in front of Planned Parenthood and campaign and, and plead and beg people to not have that abortion. But see, you're not fighting for a life, you're waging war, you're waging war against women and their freedom to choose. That's the, that's the war we're in. The ability to be strong and to be ready depends upon an awareness of two realities, the reality of this world and the reality in the heavenly realms of life with God in Christ. Our battles are carried out by standing firm against the enticements of evil, not by destroying people. I really want to emphasize that. It's not by destroying people. As verse 12 says, our struggle is not with humans, they are not the enemy. The way we carry out our battle is the most eloquent witness to our faith. How are we prepared? How are we ready for all the hosts of hell arrayed against the church? Well, no capitulation for one thing. We must remain strong in faith and trust in God that he is sovereign. We must be doctrinally sound. What we believe really makes a difference. The way you behave is a function of your beliefs and your value system, of your worldview. 
I'm telling you things you already know, but that's that's a fact. Jesus said you can tell a tree by its fruit and what kind of fruit is being born on it. We need to be immersed in the Word of God, not repudiating it by sacrificing truth on the altar of peace and compromise. Think about how Jesus battled Satan with the Word of God. One of the things that we're very uh, sensitive to in Christ's Covenant Church, and certainly as of late, this, uh, this rallying that we have as a church and the core group of people who are involved in Christ the King Academy and the raising of our children to not abrogate our responsibility to the secular humanist and godless government and institutions of Satan. Another way that we war and battle is by loving people with a burden for evangelism. Remember, we are gospel people. And a major way to wage war is through evangelizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to be constantly in prayer. Constantly in prayer. True prayer is akin to spiritual breathing. It's a comprehensive activity, and it involves a variety of modes when you think about it. It involves praise, lament, confession, obedience, contemplation, and intercession. We war on our knees. We war out of the burdens that the Holy Spirit puts in and on us. It's so important for us to, to, to be in prayer. It's so important, and I'm going to tell you, I'd be the first one to raise my hand and say, I, I can do better, for sure. But again, I would challenge you, as I did, I think, in a little message I sent out uh, every week with the prayer thing, uh, prayer request, rather, um, is there a more intimate time with God than when you're praying? Think about that. Truly. I mean, this is intimate, okay? I'm talking to a, a wonderful crowd of people, but if I have a conversation with Luke afterwards or Dean or somebody, you know, there's that intimacy there too, but there's no more intimate time with God than when, you're on, when, you, when you are before the throne of grace by the blood-bought access we have by Christ to God and talking to God. Remember, we are soldiers of the King, the Lord of hosts, and the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.